All right, flip to Jeremiah chapter 13, and then we're also going to go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is actually quoted twice in Hebrews uh, in the passage Steve just read in, in Hebrews 10, but also back in Hebrews chapter 8. So I'm not going to read that here, but Hebrews uh, cites Jeremiah 31 for a very specific reason, as we'll see in a little bit. But Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 1 through 11, let's read that, and then we'll pray. Jeremiah 13, verse 1, these are the words of God. Thus Yahweh said to me, Go and buy yourself a linen belt and put it around your loins, but do not put it in water. So I bought the belt in accordance with the word of Yahweh and put it around my loins. Then the word of Yahweh came to me a second time, saying, Take the belt that you have bought, which is around your loins, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a crevice in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates, as Yahweh had commanded me. Now it happened that after many days Yahweh said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the belt which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the belt from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the belt was ruined. It was totally worthless. Then the word of Yahweh uh, came to me, saying, Thus says Yahweh, Just so I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have walked after other gods to serve them and to worship them, let them be just like this belt, which is totally worthless. For as the belt clings to the loins of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me declares Yahweh, that they might be for me a people for a name, for praise, for, and for beauty, but they did not listen. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we have gathered this evening in order to praise and honor your holy name. And we, like Jeremiah, desire to exalt your name among the nations, starting here in Fauquier County. And I ask and pray that you would aid us in this mission, because it is a daunting mission that will require nothing less than your presence and your sovereign guidance. Help us as we look to your word now. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we're continuing our series on the prophets, and two weeks ago we looked at Elijah, who is the representative of the prophets. He and Moses represent the law and the prophets. They were there present with Jesus when Jesus was transfigured, and those two were essentially validating who Jesus was. They were the two witnesses, two or three witnesses required to validate Christ's work and Christ's mission, and so they were there present, Moses and Elijah, law and the prophets. And last week we considered Isaiah and his mission, which pertained to the holiness of God among the nations. God's holiness in Isaiah 6 is to be experienced, to be, in, in, to be washed over on oneself, and then we are sent out into the world to proclaim those, those things, that holiness. And tonight we're going to look at the life of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is uh, quite different than Isaiah and quite different than the other prophets, as we'll see. Jeremiah's name means, my exalted in the Lord, my exalted in the Lord, and it can also carry the meaning of Yahweh will rise. This idea of exaltation, rising. The Lord, Yahweh, will rise. Perhaps the, the best way, the better way to understand it, is the meaning that it is to really consider that, that Jeremiah himself was raised up by Yahweh. He was raised up by Yahweh. He was carried forth in God's strength. He was 
buffeted and bludgeoned the entire way. And he did that in order to bring God's people back to the covenant, to woo them back as the prophets would often do. Now, historically speaking, and, and again, this is in your outline and the notes there, the uh, timeline, but uh, God appeared to Jeremiah during the 13th year of Josiah's reign. Remember that Josiah became king when he was eight years old. Any eight-year-olds here? Nine, some, okay. That's a pretty young age to become king. At this point, I would take an eight-year-old president. Uh, I would be fine with that. Any, any will do, preferably a homeschooled one, but you know what I'm getting at. So God appeared to Jeremiah during Josiah's 13th year of reigning. So you can do the math on that, which means that Jeremiah was actually quite possibly 14 years old when he preached his first sermon. Jeremiah was born at the very end of King Manasseh's evil reign, Manasseh being a, one of the bad kings uh, his closest, Jeremiah's closest companion was Baruch, and Baruch was his scribe, his assistant, his executive assistant, so to speak. So the setting for the book is the late 7th, early 6th centuries B.C. Remember, B.C., you kind of got to go backwards with the math because we're counting down. So late 7th, early 6th century B.C. Being a teenager, it's quite possible that Jeremiah himself was not taken very seriously by his his fellow countrymen. He was from the village of Anathoth, which is actually only a couple miles from Jerusalem. It's very close to Jerusalem. He experienced a wide variety of opposition during his tenure, which we'll see shortly. Uh, In Jeremiah 22, he praises King Josiah. He praises King Josiah, but not Josiah's son, because Josiah, if you remember, Josiah instituted sweeping reform in the nation, bringing Israel back to covenant faithfulness. Uh, Shapin, the secretary, was there. They discovered the book of the law, and uh, they all repented. And it was this great, glorious moment of national covenanting when the people and the king came together and said, we've sinned, we need to get back to God's law word. And it was a great, glorious moment. But it was only a, 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 um, a great and glorious moment for a little bit of time. Jeremiah prophesied from 627 B.C. until the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., so just over 40 years. That was, that was Jeremiah's ministry. So as a mid-teenager in the mid-teens there to into his 50s, that was Jeremiah and his ministry. While Josiah's reforms were a welcome act of repentance after discovering probably the book of Deuteronomy, uh, that's in 2 Kings 22, by the way. His son Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, how many kids like that name? Jehoiakim, take out the trash. Sounds it was fun. But his son Jehoiakim, not, not a great guy. In fact, he was very evil. He did not follow in his father's footsteps. His father, no doubt, would have t- teached his son how to obey God. He would have taught him and, and given him... <laughs> it's taught, not teach, I know. He would have taught him how to grow and mature, and he just decided he would go his own way. So, children, don't don't do that. (laughs) So, Jehoiakim did the very opposite of his dad, and I want to come back to that in a minute. Now, to give you some handles on Jeremiah's ministry, you can basically break his ministry up into five distinct periods of time, and we'll kind of walk through those very quickly. But the first period was Jeremiah's call in around 627 B.C., 
until 622 BC, so about five years. Five years of ministry that resulted in Jeremiah being called on to deal with the fact that there's a political crisis happening with Babylon. During that, it was during this time that Josiah made his reforms in 2 Kings 22 and 23. So that's the first period, those first five years. The second period is often called the silent years of Jeremiah's ministry because Jeremiah experiences these great sweeping reforms as the nation decides to repent and come back to, to God. And so there wasn't a whole lot of prophetic ministry during that time. Now, keep in mind, this is the difficulty with understanding biblical history, is you kind of have to keep your mind on what else is going on in the world at that time. It helps understand who was the emperor when Jesus was born and then who was the emperor when Jesus was put to death. And, you know, that, that stuff helps us. In 612 B.C., a major event happened. Babylon conquered Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. So major, major, major defeat for Assyria. So world powers fighting. Babylon takes care of, of Nineveh. So as far as political struggles go, Assyria, with the help of Egypt, they had basically kept Babylon from growing into a superpower at that time, but that didn't work any longer because Babylon became stronger and stronger and stronger. That changed in 609. In 609 BC, Jeremiah was reactivated for ministry. And during this time, King Josiah, now picture on a map, you know where Israel is kind of smack dab. I'm going to flip it so this hopefully will make sense. But Israel's here. Egypt's sort of down in the southwest, Assyria's to the north, and then the northeast, like modern-day Iraq, you have Babylon. So Israel's like in the middle of these world superpowers. So talk about geopolitical issues. <laughs> so King Josiah, he was able for a long time to resist the Egyptians and their encroachment upon Israelite territory, but Egypt was fighting Babylon during that time. So they were trying to march on to defeat Babylon. And if you remember, we, I think we might have covered it at some point. I don't remember when we talked about King Josiah. I think it was a few months ago. But Josiah actually lost his life in battle against Pharaoh. Necho was his name, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And that was at Megiddo. So that's how Josiah, after becoming king at eight and reigning a certain period, he ended up dying at the hands of the Pharaoh. Jehoahaz was king for three months after that, and Jehoiakim, the really bad evil son of Josiah, was made king by Necho. So now, it still gets interesting. That's during Jeremiah's life. The third period, though, difficulty became the norm at this point for Jeremiah. And this is from 609 to 597 B.C. Jeremiah faced immense pressure because he was the only prophet telling Jehoiakim, who was his greatest enemy. I mean, they were butting heads like crazy. Jehoiakim, remember, was the son of Josiah, the evil son. Jeremiah is the only prophet who's coming in and telling the king to submit to Babylon's impending invasion. All the other prophets, the false prophets, they're saying, no, fight the Babylons, we can win. God's given us the victory. Jeremiah is the only prophet in the land saying, no, 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 Babylon's coming, just submit to them. This is God's punishment on us. Don't fight it. Now, there's a famous battle, the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. That is what, the, you know, you think of, again, like secular history. 
It's all tied into biblical history. There's really no such thing as secular history anyway, but different, different topic. In 605 BC, Babylon secured their, the, the future of their great empire, and they did it at the Battle of Carchemish. This battle was led by the would-be king Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? This is before he was king of Babylon. He led the victory against Egypt there at the Battle of Carchemish, which was a city on the Euphrates River. So there's a connection here with the passage we just read where Jeremiah hides the loin belt in the Euphrates, assuming there's a connection. There is a connection. So Babylon's de- Babylon defeats Egypt and Assyria at Carchemish, that city on the Euphrates River. You can look that up anywhere. You can find that information. But Jeremiah 46.2 actually explains Carchemish and even mentions it. So the Bible is intertwined with what else is going on in the geopolitical sphere. So Nebuchadnezzar defeated Pharaoh Necho at that point. That was the one who Josiah tried to stop, but he ultimately lost his life in, in battle. Also, to give you some historical context, this was the first deportation of Jews to Babylon at this time. You should know that there was a significant person, a man, a young man, who was carried off in the first deportation to Babylon. His name was Daniel. Remember Daniel. He was taken away in this first group. So, hostile situation here with Babylon winning a decisive battle, becoming in that moment the world superpower at that time. Jeremiah wrote a message to Jehoiakim with Barak's uh, scribal uh, assistance. That's in chapter 36, but something devastating happens. Jehoiakim takes the message of Jeremiah and he burns it. He burns the scroll. So Jehoiakim didn't listen to Jeremiah, which means he wasn't listening to God. So we have a problem, and then Babylon takes Jerusalem next, and then we have the second deportation. And guess who was a part of the second deportation? A young man named Ezekiel, which we'll talk about next week. (laughs) He was one of them among them, and you can read about that in 2 Kings 24. So second and third periods of Jeremiah's ministry were really rough. It doesn't get any better. The fourth period of Jeremiah's ministry began in 597 B.C., and this is when Jehoiakim dies. And that period ends in 587 when Jerusalem and the temple was razed. It was destroyed. They had, they had destroyed the whole thing. They had razed it, and not in the R-A-I-S-E-D sense, <laughs> R-A-Z-E-D sense. Zedekiah, he had replaced Jehoiachin, another king, but he was summoned to Babylon in 593 B.C. Shortly after this, this event, when Zedekiah in, uh, uh, goes away and Jehoiachin comes, Jerusalem is sacked. And at that point, there were some refugees along with Jeremiah who had fled to, to Egypt. Now, I was digging really into Jeremiah heavily this week, and you can read about this in Jeremiah 42 where basically Yahweh says not to do it. You do not go to Egypt. Well, Jeremiah didn't really have a choice. They fled to Egypt, and it didn't really go well. That was the third deportation of the Jews. So there are three of them. The first one, Daniel's in that group. That's how he ends up in Babylon. Then you have Ezekiel. And then the third and final one was when Jerusalem is burned and destroyed. Uh, A picture of what would happen in AD 70 when Rome would do it, except it would be far worse. So this final period, the fifth and final period of Jeremiah's ministry was here after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. 
So major event, you can sort of memorize that in your head. 586 BC, Babylon destroys Jerusalem. And that you can see that in chapter 50, 52. And, of course, into the 570s B.C. Now, Gedaliah was a righteous Jew. He was appointed to be governor over Israel at this point under Babylonian supervision. So, you know, sort of a puppet regime, as we like to refer to them today. But something evil took place. He was murdered by a fellow Israelite named Ishael. And uh, that was a crime that Babylon had found appalling. So they were frustrated with what was going on in Israel. Yet again, they had just destroyed the place, and they can't even get a good puppet regime in there. But Jeremiah, however, he was forced to leave Jerusalem and head with those who were fleeing southwest to Egypt, where presumably Jeremiah dies. Now, we, he, he was largely disregarded by his own countrymen. I mean, as far as like a church growth strategy, he was terrible at it. He couldn't get his church past two. It was just him and Baruch, right? This sort of joke about how we do things today in, in, in church ministry. Get as many people as you can by being as lukewarm as you can. And, and Jeremiah never compromised on that. He stayed true to the Word of God the entire time and suffered immensely because of it. The very people he was called to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind and their body, the very people that they were called to respond to Yahweh this way, they had rejected Jeremiah. They didn't want to hear from God, and God dealt with them. So after Jeremiah's death and after the roughly 70 years of captivity that he had predicted, Babylon eventually fell to the Medes and the Persians, and that happened in 539, so not, not long after, another 50 years after this happened. Cyrus liberated the captives. You can read about that in Ezra, and then we get into the Ezra-Nehemiah story. So not much else is known about Jeremiah. The prophet fought for a long time, suffered immensely, and eventually died. Isaiah was historically sawn in, in, in two. But according to Tertullian, we don't know how Jeremiah died, but Tertullian, the church father, said that Jeremiah was actually stoned to death by his fellow Jews in Egypt. So they hated him. They hated him. They hated God. Now let's look at these two texts real quick. Jeremiah 13. We have the story of the linen belt, the loincloth, your undergarment. God tells him to go and buy a new one, but don't put it in any water. Don't wash it, essentially. But go ahead and wear it. So Jeremiah wears it for a time, so he does. And by the way, just so you understand, because some translations, I think the LSB gets it right with the language of a belt. Some, some translations don't do that. But this was an undergarment that you would have had, it would have had a belt feature that, think of like underwear with belt on, a belt on it. But it was also very long, and it went down from the waist to the knees. And to show something like that in public was entirely scandalous. So that's probably what Isaiah did for those few years, was, was doing that. Jeremiah, he's told to hide his newly acquired linen belt at the Euphrates in the crevice of a rock somewhere. And he does so. So after many days, Jeremiah is instructed by God to go and Go back and retrieve the belt. So only he knew where it was, he and God. He goes, pulls the, the, the undergarment belt out. And when he takes it out, it was in verse 7, ruined and totally worthless. So the words there in Hebrew, it was corrupted, it was spoiled, it was marred, it was basically good for nothing. Uh, that, that phrase, uh, totally worthless, could also mean just it's not youth, useful whatsoever. So it's just not a good garment anymore. Those are just some other meanings. 
Look at verses 9 through 11. Thus says Yahweh, Just so I will ruin, same word, so same word here, the, the garment was ruined. He says, Now I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts and have walked after other gods to serve them and to worship them. Let them be just like this belt, which is totally worthless. Same phrase. So the the belt, the undergarment is ruined and totally worthless. He's going to ruin their pride because basically they have become totally worthless. For as the belt clings to the loins of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares Yahweh, that they might be for me a people, for a name, for praise and for beauty, but they did not listen. So God has rejected Israel and Judah because they have rejected his glory They've rejected his praise and instead substituted those things for their own sordid gain. So the chapter starts with the soiled, rotted, and decayed underwear, and it ends with the shameful image of a woman's skirt being pulled up over her face. That's in verse 27. So there's a lot of rough language here in Jeremiah, but it's illustrative of what he was talking about. Basically, he's saying God's people are a disgrace. They are a disgrace. And the point, well, Israel and Judah's pride had turned into shame. They had disgraced themselves, essentially. When you cast off an undergarment buried in the ground by the river, what is the result? Well, it deteriorates, it becomes worthless, it's unusable. So here's the metaphor here. God's loincloth of the houses of Israel and Judah are going to be cast off near the Euphrates, which is what we discussed a minute ago with Nebuchadnezzar and when he won the battle at Carchemish. So he's prophesying and telling them exactly what's going to happen. The wealth, the power, the magnificence of culture, Israelite culture, was not seen as something that God had blessed them with, but instead something they believed they did themselves. And in your prayer, Chris, I was amening up and down in my heart because we have a country that we have inherited quite of good stuff right from from the folks who founded our country some some humanistic underpinnings but generally like it's united states has been an incredible uh experiment as many call it but today we have an entire nation that has thinks that all of that was a result of their own doing and when you turn the blessings of god into your own arrogant assumption about that you have done this well we deserve what we get and what we get is oppression and tyranny Now, figuratively speaking, Israel and Judah were God's loincloth. God's loincloth, near to God, intimate with God, in a privileged uh, position of glory and honor among the nations. But they rejected that privilege, they rejected that grace, and they were ruined as a result. Israel and Judah, we might say, were God's wardrobe. Think of Paul in the language of put on Christ, like he's a, a robe. You know, put on all of these things that Jesus has given us. So they were God's wardrobe. Instead of honoring this, they cast it off. They, they were ruined. Now flip to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, we'll pick it up roughly around verse 27. But there are six confessions in Jeremiah. There are six confessions and uh, Jeremiah 11, 12, 15, 17, 18, and 20. If you want to look those up, let me know later. But 
They're called the Confessions of Jeremiah. And each of those confessions gives us a glimpse into the pain and suffering of the prophet. It's very raw language that he uses in these, in these passages. Uh, the pain and suffering of the people that he was called to. It really wasn't a great time to be alive. <laughs> in, in terms of just pragmatic, look around, everything's disheveled and a mess. How, how do we get out of this? Jeremiah preached truth. He hears the word from the Lord. He internalizes that word. He, he cares about what God thinks. He seems as if he's the only one who cares about what God thinks. He, he feels it deeply. He expresses it. Those are his confessions. There's a lot of emotions contained in these passages because Jeremiah, he is nicknamed. Does anybody know his nickname? He is the weeping prophet. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, and part of the reason is because of the amount of tears he shed during his ministry. You may recall Jesus shedding tears over Jerusalem because of their uh, obstinate refusal, their recalcitrant hearts, their, their evil stubbornness. Jesus is like Jeremiah, a weeping prophet. But that's who Jeremiah was. There's a lot of emotion. He labored over and over again to a people who rejected him over and over again. Back in chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but we have this official call of Jeremiah, and he is, the, he is supposed to go. He's going to be the one who uproots and tears down, and he will cause to perish, and he will pull down. All that language is Jeremiah 1. And he does that all in order to, quote, build and to plant. So think of deconstruction and reconstruction. That's Jeremiah's ministry. That was his ministry in a nutshell, and it was hard work. He was mocked. Listen to all the things that he had go on with him. He was mocked and persecuted by his own fellow villagers from Anathoth. He was forbidden to marry by God, by the way. He was forbidden to marry by God, and he was forbidden to have children. At one point, he was beaten and put into the stocks by Pashur, the priest. Uh, at one point, he barely escaped death from a mob. He was accused of being a traitor because of his theology of non-resistance against Babylon. Everybody else said, fight Babylon, fight Babylon. Jeremiah says, nope, they are coming, just let it happen. And he was viewed as a traitor. They viewed him, as, all the false prophets viewed him as the false prophets. He was thrown into a dried up well at one point and left to die. And the only reason he got out of the well is because they wanted to put him in a different prison. Living his best life now, right? <laughs> then he was carried off to Egypt only to die at the hands of his countrymen. So he is a suffering prophet, no doubt, just like Jesus. A weeping, suffering prophet. And by the way, the next book in your Bible is Lamentations. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, if that gives you any idea who we're talking about. Where he laments, this theology of lamentation, where you lament over what it is that's going on in the world. And we probably should recover that and do that. But there's a glimmer of hope here in Jeremiah 31. And what is the hope? Well, it's the hope of the new covenant. It's the hope of the new covenant. Most of the book is called a book of doom. <laughs> That's literally what people call it, a book of doom. Most of it is that. But here, Jeremiah speaks of a day when after all the uprooting and tearing down and perishing and pulling down those deconstruction things, after that day when that's long over, there will be a time of building. There will be a time of, of reformation and reconstruction. The house of Israel and the house of Judah will be brought together, and they will be brought together, and one final covenant will be cut. However, 
it's not exactly like the covenant made during the time of Moses. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. There's a new covenant coming. It's not like the same one in the Old Testament. There is continuity. There will be in this covenant bloodshed and atonement and sacrifice and law and so on, all of those things. But there's a discontinuity as well. The blood of Christ and His atonement, not the blood of animals, will be the thing that deals with sin. So what are the central features of this covenant? Look at verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. Listen to what he's going to say about this covenant. What, is the, what are the features? I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Two things Jeremiah highlights. Ezekiel does the same thing in chapter 36. But first, God will put his law within them. God will put his law within them. Up until this point, where is the law of God? It's on tablets. Kids, do you remember where the law of God, the tablets, were stored? They were stored somewhere in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in a thing called the Ark of the Covenant. So in there were the tablets. That was where the law. The law was to spring forth from the tabernacle through the, you know, the front gates and all the way into the world. That was a microcosm of the creation and God's presence and God's temple. But the law was kept there. The law was on stone. Israel, they had broken the external law. They failed to practice it. And because they failed to practice it, they failed to put it inside them. They were supposed to take that law and put it in them, to memorize it, to teach their children all about it, to bind it on their, on their wrists and on their forehead, not literally like it's practiced today with phylacteries, but they were to have it so embedded in their mind that it was the thing that they thought about all the time. They lived their life in light of it, but they had broken it. He had husbanded Israel, God says, but they broke the marriage. They divorced themselves. They divorced themselves from God. So they needed the law within them. So God, Jeremiah says, is going to put that law, take it out. It's all on himself, but he's going to put it in them. He will renew this covenant, this legal covenant and oath. He will take the responsibility on, him, on, himself, on, him, on himself. Quite literally, God will take matters into his own hands. If you can't stuff that law into your heart, I will do it for you. That's what he's saying. His Torah, His teaching will be written on their hearts. The heart is the very center of our nature, the very center of our being. The vehicle, the vehicle of this law delivery to the heart is the Holy Spirit. And as a result, God will be their God and they will be His people. The law written on stone will then be written on fleshly hearts going from the external to the internal. It was always supposed to go to the internal, but they were incapable of doing it. The Holy Spirit has to deliver that to the heart. God's presence will be in their midst. All right, it'll be right square in the middle of their very person. 
Unconditional surrender to Christ is the invariable response. (laughs) He has you surrounded. There's nothing you can do. (laughs) The Spirit is in you. But the second thing, the second feature, not just the law going in. Well, verse 34, the least, including babies, by the way, important verse here for baptizing children, the least, including the babies, to the greatest will know Yahweh. Not just know him with mental cognition, but experience him truth, truthfully, truly, relationally, in a fresh way. Something different was coming with the presence of the Holy Spirit in God's people. Now, knowing God in the older covenant meant having a relationship with God, which consisted of worship and obedience in accordance to the Torah, the law, the teaching. But the new covenant feature means that God's very presence will be in the very center of our being so that the knowledge of God, that is proper worship and submission and obedience to God, will spring forth from a heart that's been circumcised or baptized. That's where obedience comes from. Everyone, the most unregenerate, pagan, atheist, whatever, they still have a heart that pushes something out of them, a faith commitment that they rely on to view the world. So all classes of people, the least to the greatest, will know God, a certain post-millennial vision as Hebrews sees it. And this aspect, by the way, of the new covenant is coupled with something major. And, And you need to relish in this, church. Forgiveness of iniquity to such a degree that God will not remember our sin anymore. Children, know that. Know what Christ has given you. He has forgiven you. He has forgiven you completely. He does not remember your sins anymore. When you confess those sins, we confess that Christ uh, atoned for those sins, that our sins nailed Him to the cross, he He doesn't remember them anymore. There is a permanent legal cancellation of all debts and the establishment of true worship. He won't recall your sins so as to then issue recompense or punish you later. When you are forgiven, you are forgiven. He will forgive those sins and it will be a permanent forgiveness without condition. No condition attached. Thanks be to God. So how do we apply all this? Well, first, it's important to know because far too many Christians don't know that the law and the gospel are not enemies to be reconciled. They are friends to be cherished. The law and the gospel are not enemies to be reconciled. They are friends to be cherished. Many Christians are confused about this today. I mean, the overwhelming majority, okay? I get frustrated by this. But many Christians are confused about it due to poor biblical theology, among, among other reasons. For example, it seems that in the older covenant, you know, that God was angry all the time and he gave his law to punish his chosen people and and then Jesus came along talking about love and grace and all that stuff. And, and there was a change, as if it was different God. And it wasn't, of course. But it's true that there was a change. There was a significant change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. But the change was typological or, or, or the shadows of the Old Covenant, all of those things that pointed to Christ all along. The New Testament didn't introduce us to a different God. It just changed how we see God in a different way through progressive revelation, understanding that Jesus reveals to us the Trinitarian, the intercommunication of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and so on. What wasn't changed, what changed changed wasn't the demands of God's moral law. 
but the express, expression of it, which can only come from a regenerated heart that has the law written on our hearts. That changed. So sure, we don't have the temple anymore. We don't have the veil. We don't have the lampstand. We don't have the showbread. We don't have the priests. We don't have the outer courtyard. We don't have the bronze altar that where sacrifices were made. Uh, we don't have the Levitical priesthood. We don't have the Day of Atonement anymore. Once a year where the high priest would go in to make... make um, sacrifice. We don't have the ceremonial holiness code in that specific sense. Um, all the bloody sacrifices repeatedly over and over again. None of that. We, have, we don't have any of that anymore. Those are abolished. Yes, those have vanished away, but that's because Jesus is all those things. Okay? That's why it's changed, because he is all those things. He is the mercy seat. He is the Torah, the teaching. He is the altar. He is the priest after Melchizedek. Uh, he is the lampstand, the light of the world. He is the showbread on the table. He's the bread of life. And so on. Gee, all those symbols in the Old Testament, he's all those things combined. So the morality, the law, the moral law that was behind those ceremonies, all of those shadows now find their fulfillment in Christ. He is all of that. They were shadows that pointed to him. The morality behind it is still applicable. Right? The Old Testament saints needed a sacrifice in order to be forgiven. What do the New Testament Christians need? A sacrifice in order to be forgiven. The demand is still there, but what changed? Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. It's once and done. So what, what changed wasn't the demands of all of that, but the expressions and the forms of it. The law, far from being removed from the sight of of the Christian is actually implanted on the fleshly heart. And too many Christians want to run from the very thing that is implanted within them. The law doesn't apply today. Well, it's written on your heart. So it kind of does, yeah. <laughs> if the law isn't written on the heart, no amount of external political religion will suffice either. If the law isn't written on the heart, no amount of formalism or externalism or religious enthusiasm that you conjure up because of your false god Allah or something, none of that's going to gain you the kingdom either. So law and grace, then, are, they're not enemies, they're friends. They do not do each other's jobs, but they both have very specific jobs to do for all covenant members everywhere throughout all, all time. Now, Jeremiah's actions with the loincloth belt was a visual reminder for Judah that God had, in fact, chosen them. God had husbanded them. It's a verb there, actually, in Hebrew. When it says, I was a husband, he's literally, I husbanded them. I married them. I brought myself into covenant with them. So they had been chosen. And we might be tempted to wonder, how in the world can anyone walk away from, from such a, a gracious election, being chosen by God? How could you possibly walk away? Well, the answer is slow gradual compromise we got ourselves in this nation into a mess not overnight but through slow gradual compromise and the way out of it isn't going to be overnight either it's going to be slow gradual productivity or faithfulness and i wanted to do this series because the the prophets found themselves in in a similar cultural situation that we experience today widespread apostasy injustice, economic instability, political threats from the inside and, frankly, from the outside as well. Uh, you got all the doofuses at the World Economic Forum talking about how they're going to control the future and stuff. Like, doofuses is just a kind word. I'd like to say more. 
But they too, the prophets as well, they saw the social order of their day crumble because of faithlessness. And Thomas Watson, he was right. He said, there is more evil in a drop of sin than in a sea of affliction. Sin's ramifications, uncontested by the people of God, will destroy a culture. I'll say it again. Sin's ramifications, sin itself, but sin's ramifications, when it goes on, uncontested by the people of God, will destroy a culture. And the challenge before us as God's people is to... I'm preaching to myself all week on this because I'm frustrated. (laughs) But the challenge for us is to remain steadfast and diligent in the face of so much turmoil. That is the challenge. And maybe you feel it too, but it's just like, I don't know. It's really getting on my nerves. But the challenge is to remain steadfast and diligent. There there is so much to weep about. Anybody sometimes just want to cry? We should probably cry more. Jeremiah did. It's all right. Me too. (laughs) There's a lot to weep about. The ongoing abortion holocaust, the bloodthirstiness from pro-aborts, just the mind-numbing justifications for it. Just just stupid argumentation about it. You know, the government's own incompetence, which has massive economic ramifications. Uh, The destruction of the family unit. The cowardice of some men not going in to rescue the people. Like, what are you thinking? Uh, The inexorable decline in appetite for biblical truth. People just don't want that anymore. They want the nice little, you know, wake up and have coffee and that's my spiritual day. You know, that's the extent of your theological doctrinal statement. Okay. There's much to weep about, and we should take time to weep, but as the Apostle Paul says, we do not weep as those without hope. We have the hope because it is a grace that is planted in the heart by the Spirit. We, uh, we now live in an age, in the age of the new covenant house that Christ has built. This is, a, this is home territory. So you look around the world, we can't forget that we have home field advantage. We have home field advantage. The world belongs to the meek, not the malevolent. And this perspective on the gospel is largely missing from Christian testimony. Look at the promise of God. Law written on the heart. The least to the greatest will know God. Our sins are completely and utterly forgiven. What more could we possibly need, right? What more do you need to put those sins to death? They've been forgiven, so put them to death, he says. What more direction do you need in your life? You have the law written on your heart. So master yourself, you can master the world. Jeremiah tastes and sees the kingdom of God, spending his life in pursuit of the truth of God in a culture, choosing to live by lies, which is all to say that our diligence in gospel living means that the door is wide open and anyone can come to Christ. Anyone. The new covenant has been established. Christ is building his church. He is sending us out like Jeremiah so that the least and the greatest can come into this glorious covenant and find forgiveness. So it doesn't matter your background, your prior, your prior sins, your prior blasphemies, your economic status. Everyone is welcome to come to Jesus Christ and be forgiven. Don't forget that that's how all of you came. That's how I came. And that's how others can come. And... 
we must pray this way. We must pray that God would grant repentance to the heathen, that God would establish his people by faith, and that the church would march forward unencumbered by sin and compromise. And we really, 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 really need his mercy. The church is in a privileged position. The question is, how have we done? How have we done? How have we performed when we've been given so much? Have we given ourselves to complaining? Do we realize that when we complain, it comes from a discontented heart that is choosing to believe that God hasn't given us everything we need for life and godliness? The furtherance of the gospel will require us to be sober about this very question. How have we done? Remember, church, Christ has buried your shame, your sin, your innumerable transgressions. They are dead, they are buried, they are forgotten about, and never to be held against you. That's what grace does. So we must walk in this peace, we must walk in this grace, and we must preach in this way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ministry of Jeremiah, the immeasurable suffering that he went through, suffering none of us really fully understand. And we'll get to talk to him about it someday, and perhaps he will sit and tell us that, yeah, there was a time when he really felt like God had left him. <laughs> Maybe, Lord, I don't know. But Lord, we cast ourselves upon your mercy. And we, like Daniel, interpose here. And like Jeremiah, interpose in a nation that has just chosen to live by lies, that's chosen to do what is right in its own eyes. And I, I pray, Lord, for Crossing Crown, that you would strengthen us, strengthen our families. Would you strengthen our children so that they can take the baton into the next generation to live faithful lives, to see tyranny and evil curbed and put away? Lord, would you be gracious to us? Lord, we, none of us have it all figured out. We, there are days where we do just want to cry. And we ask that you would be with us in those days as well. But Lord, we also know that you are triumphant. So would, would your spirit remind us of everything we've been given in this new covenant so that we would not weep as those who have no hope, but instead rejoice as those who have everything we need. Father, we repent and we ask that you would give repentance to the world. And we thank you that you will remember our sins no more. In Christ's name. Amen.